Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. Before we start, we do have a couple of uh, personal things to take care of. Aww. That is our first grandson. I I missed the last lesson of last year. My daughter called at 7 o'clock in the morning on Saturday and said, we're at the hospital. And I turned to my wife and I said, do you want to go? She said, yes. (laughs) Now, my daughter's in Colorado. So we were in the car by 7.40 and got there at 5.30. The baby was born at noon, so he was all cleaned up. Everybody's doing well. That is my beloved with the little one. Now, now I will add that um, my son-in-law was sitting there with the baby, and I'm sitting there, and my wife is out in the hall, and my daughter is in the bathroom, and we're watching a video on how to nurse babies. (laughs) I don't know how this worked out. And all of a sudden, four nurses come running into the room. Is everything okay? And apparently my daughter in the bathroom had accidentally pulled the switch, and all the nurses in the world came running. Of course, my nurse daughter here did tell me that I needed to take care of the nurses, so we brought them Chipotle, and we brought them donuts, and they loved us. Anyway, our first grandbaby, everybody is doing great. Yes? No, he has more hair than I have. His name is Micah Elliott Owens. So, we have been working our way through the book of Matthew. It was my goal to finish chapter 5 at the end of last year. We didn't make it because I didn't make it. So, we're going to finish chapter 5 today. And our goal for the year is to make it through the book of Matthew. For the year. I hope we do it. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 is what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus' longest recorded sermon that we have. We started with the Beatitudes. Then we went to, uh, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. Then he had a discussion about the law. He said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Not a dot of the law will be erased until everything is accomplished. And the people are going, oh shoot, I can't do it. He then begins to give a series of examples of how the external law was interpreted and how the internal application of that, what that looks like. So he says, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder anyone. And of course you've heard it said, it's in the Ten Commandments. Don't kill anyone. But I say to you, if you're angry at them, you've already killed them in your heart. So each of these sections begins with a, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he gives his interpretation. Now it is interesting because some of the early, you have heard it said, it's like, well, this is in the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder. Some of them are scattered around the rest of the law in the Old Testament. The one today, I think it's just made up. Okay? Let's see how this goes. Verse 43 of chapter 5. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you sit there and go, who said that? Okay, we know that the Old Testament says you are to love your neighbor. Okay, we know it says that. But what we also know is that the Old Testament had lots of rules about doing good things for those who hate you. You know, there were rules. If you see your neighbor's cow wandering away from his property, you're supposed to go get it and take it back. I mean, that seems like the right thing to do. But guess what? You were supposed to do the same thing to your enemy. There's that guy living over there that you hate, and you see his cow wandering off. My first vote would be, hmm, steaks for dinner. (laughs) No, you're supposed to get it and take it back. But he begins his statement by saying, you have heard it said you should love love your neighbors but hate your enemies. The reason is, is because that's what we naturally do. I mean, if I were going to give you practical advice for living your life, this is the kind of thing I would say if I were a good old-fashioned cynic. Love those who love you, and if somebody does it to you, you do it back to them even more. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What we're going to see in this passage right here is Jesus is going to take everything you think you know and turn it on its head and say, there are people who are going to do you wrong. Love them. Pray for them. Do good to them. Why would we do that? Why in the world would we do good things to people who hate us? And he's going to give us the answer. And I'll go ahead and give you the answer. We do it because that's what God does. And we are to be imitators of God. You know the whole lesson? We can leave now. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, so that you will be children of God. Now let's think about this for a moment. I'm living a nice, peaceful life. I don't want to irritate anybody. I want to be nice to everybody. I want to be good to everybody. Why would I have enemies? Why would I have people who hate me? If you were a good Christian, wouldn't everybody like you? Hmm. Let's go back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful... All of these are great and wonderful things. And we think, wow, if I did those things, and what's the last one? Blessed are you when people persecute you for righteousness' sake. Why would they do that? Well, when we talked about that passage, we went back to the first chapter of the book of John, and we talked about Jesus being the light coming in the world, and the world hated him because the world loves the darkness. 
You and I need to accept the fact that there are going to be those who despise the gospel, who despise God, and they're not going to like us when we preach the gospel to the world. We just have to accept that fact. That's a given. Look at the life of Christ. Look at the life of all the apostles. Every one of the apostles died for their faith. We can have a little discussion about John. That's another topic. They tried to kill him. Didn't work, so they just exiled him. Because God still had a book for him to write, the book of Revelation. We have to accept the fact as we go into this world reflecting the image of Christ, the world is not going to like us. And sometimes we live in a society that it works okay, and we go, shoo. And sometimes we live in a society that it doesn't work, and we go, okay. In fact, there's discussions about whether or not persecution is a sign, is a necessary condition for true belief. Because Jesus says, they hated me, they'll hate you too. So if they don't hate us, well, you get the picture. So we're going to acknowledge the fact that there are going to be those who want to persecute you, who are our enemies. The only question remains, how do we respond to them? We know how they're going to respond to us. We are the enemy. They are going to respond to us. The question is, how do we respond to them? And that's what this passage is about. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we are not going to start with a list of who your enemies are because you would want to get very personal about it. You would start talking about that neighbor, maybe. You would start talking about that group of politicians. You know who they are, right? We're not going to talk about them. You'd be talking about those coworkers who mock you. You'd be talking, you'd be, and you'd come up with the list. And you know what your natural tendency is, right? They did it to me. I'm going to do it to them. They're not nice to me. I'm not nice to them. They're going to make fun of me. I'm going to make fun of them. They'll make fun of me with their group, and I'll go over to my group, and I'll make fun of And what does Jesus say? Love them. <sighs> oh, shoot. Love them. Now, at this point, we ought to have a discussion about what love means. And we'll have a very short one because it's a very misunderstood term in our world today. I've mentioned in here hundreds of times that my wife and I are involved in the marriage mentoring program of this church where new couples who are about to get married have to go through this program before they can be married at the church. And one of the discussions we have is we're told, you know, husbands love your wives. And we as our society today equate love with a good, nice, strong, emotionally positive feeling towards somebody else. I feel good toward you, therefore I love you. When in reality, love has nothing or very little to do with emotional response. The emotion should be there. We don't want a passionless life. 
But the love, but the emotion is more of a response than the actual love itself. Love is seeking the good of the beloved. I want what is good for you. So, your enemy comes along and says, and we go, back, right? No. Why? Because we know it does no good for the other person. We are to seek that which is good for the other person. Now, what's important today, as we look at our mixed-up morality in our society, etc., is that giving someone love may not be what they want. They may want you to endorse their particular lifestyle, and we will say no, because that is not love. We don't do it out of hatred. If we're doing it out of hatred... We have just violated this commandment. But out of love, we say, if you are living a life that contradicts the word of God, the end result is going to be bad. There are those who would have us not share the gospel because by sharing the gospel, we are being arrogant and pretending that our way is better than their way. But we believe in a God who has declared that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And if we do not share that gospel, we are not showing love to our enemies. We are to share the gospel at all times. And that is love. We need to let God... Christ dictate to us what love is, not the world. Now, unfortunately, we oftentimes do hate our enemies. I mean, we just get so fed up with that person. And what do we do? We do what we do with every sin that we commit. We repent, we pray, we ask the Holy Spirit for help. And we try, we work at loving our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. Hmm. How many of you spend a lot of time praying for politicians you don't like? No. Yeah. I'm trying to remember that line out of... Uh, Fiddler on the roof. Rabbi, do you, have a, do you have a prayer for the czar? May the Lord bless him and keep him far away from us. <laughs> Something like that. No. We are to pray for those who persecute us. I was talking with one of my sisters over the holidays and asking her what she was reading. And she's reading a book about some missionary that was thrown into prison. And he said, you know... At first, I was just really bummed that I was thrown into prison and they had taken away my mission field. And then I realized God just put me in a different mission field. And all of a sudden, I was where I was supposed to be. We've talked about Paul in here before. You know, Paul was carted off to Rome. And every day they chained him to a Roman soldier. Poor Roman soldier. <laughs> Can 
you imagine being handcuffed to Billy Graham all day long? You don't stand a chance. But if we let our anger and our bitterness rule our lives, we will miss those opportunities that God gives us. Now, can I stand here and say, if I pray for my enemy, they're going to repent, they're going to turn around, they're going... No, I can't guarantee that at all. This is not a command to your enemy. This is a command to you. Love those who are your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why do we do that? So that we will be children of God, sons of God. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. When we talk about grace, we talk about two kinds of grace. There is what is known as specific grace, which is the grace that moves you, you, to salvation. God works in my heart and he moves me to salvation. That is grace. But we also talk about God's common grace. That is his grace that is bestowed upon all of humanity. And you think, what is that? Well, there's more of it than we acknowledge. We think, my, the world's a bad place. Trust me, it could be worse. It could be a lot worse. God's restraining grace keeps the world from being as bad as it could be. Why does the rain fall on the just and the unjust and the sun shines on the just and the unjust? I mean, let's face it, okay? I'm driving through West Texas on my way to Colorado, and there's these fields. You know, there's a field over here and a field over there, and I don't understand growing things at all. I thought it was a little odd that there was still cotton out in the fields here. But anyway, there's a field. Let's say that I could, I'm God and I construct the universe. Okay? Here is the field of the believer. The wheat is high. It gets plenty of rain. And right next to it is the field of the unbeliever. No rain, lots of weeds. Wouldn't that work out great? Wouldn't that guy over there go, ah, I should be a believer because if I'm a believer, then I'll get rain. But instead, God just pours the rain on all of them. Or not in West Texas. Why does God do that? Why does God demonstrate his grace to unbelievers? Anybody have an answer to that? Because he's God, because he loves them, because he created them, because he nurtures them, because he allows them to grow, and he allows them to have an opportunity to repent and turn to him. And if they don't, it's not God's fault. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. This is God's common grace. So, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Okay. I'm going to love 
the people who love me. That's the easy part, right? If I do that, how am I any different from the tax collector? Now, you know at this time, we've had this discussion, right, that tax collectors were kind of the scum of the earth, okay? We had this discussion, right? The Romans go to this province and they say, I need a billion dollars out of this province. So the guy says, okay, I'll get you a billion dollars. So the governor divides it up into ten sections and says, I need ten billion, a billion dollars. I need a hundred million from each of you. Now, you can collect all the money you want. I just need a hundred million of it. And they would pass it down to the next guy. And he goes, I need ten million. You can collect all you want. But all I need is, and you get down to the tax collector at the bottom of the pyramid, and he says, I need a hundred bucks from you. Now, the tax collector has a Roman soldier right here with a sword, and you don't want to mess with the Roman soldier, so you're going to give me the hundred bucks. Now, if I give 50 to the guy upstream, I get to keep 50. I'm making money. I'm making a killing. This is a money machine. That's why they hated the tax collectors. And the guy at the bottom of the totem pole was probably a local. In fact, his name was probably Matthew, who wrote this book. And Jesus walks up to him and says, hey, follow me, a tax collector. Matthew knows what he's talking about. Even the most wretched person in the world loves his mother, I'm assuming. If you love your mother, why are you any different than they are? But only the children of God love their enemies. If we love only the people that are easy to love, and you know those people, you have family members that are just easy to love. I mean, it's just, I mean, on a bad day you could love them. How could you hate them? They're so nice. And then you have family members that it's just... Even the tax collectors love those who love them. How are you any different from them? What reward do you have? Now, we're going to have a discussion next week about rewards. So we'll kind of skip over for, right, for that for right now. But verse 1 of chapter 6 says... Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There is definitely the idea of rewards here, okay? The question is, how many points do you get for loving somebody who is just irresistibly lovable versus the person who is your enemy and is persecuting you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Okay, you know, right, the way the Jews divide the universe, right? Particularly at this time. There are Jews, rah, rah, and there's everybody else. The Gentiles, way down here, Jews way up here. 
Now, people have done this forever. I mean, the Greeks, it was Greeks, and it was barbarians. You were either a Greek and you were good, or you were a barbarian and, well, you needed to become a Greek. So for them to say you're acting just like a Gentile would be an insult to them. But that's what he's saying here. You're walking down the street, and you walk by somebody, and you say, Hi, how are you doing? Why? Because they're your brother, they're your friend, they're your neighbor, they're your co-worker. They're someone that you have a good relationship with. But you're walking down the street, and here comes the guy that you don't like. And you turn and kind of rub your head, and you walk by... And you don't dare talk to them, right? You don't dare greet them because greeting them would be to acknowledge their existence and to acknowledge their worth. And the observation is you're just like a Gentile. You're not showing that you're part of the people of God. Because you know what? Jesus talked to the tax collectors. Matthew knows that. Jesus talks to the prostitutes. Jesus talks to the woman who'd been married a half dozen times. Jesus talked to people that the good people wouldn't talk to. Why? Because God shows his grace to the just and to the unjust. The sun rises for the just and the sun rises for the unjust. The rain falls on the fields of the just and it runs falls on the fields of the unjust because God created all of humanity all of humanity is made in the image of God all of humanity could be redeemed there's a whole philosophical theological discussion that goes on there we're not going to go down that path who are you to do otherwise who are you to take a human being created in the image of God and to walk down the street and not address them with a greeting. You are making a decision that they are not my kind of people and therefore I'm not going to talk to them. Hmm. We are called to be imitators of God. What is the primary characteristic that we are told to imitate and that is love now i know what we want to imitate right let's imitate judgment ha 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 let's go judging the world no we're not supposed to do that god will take care of that he will trust me he will yeah but somebody might get no it's it's god's job god will take care of his job You take care of your job. When we look at the attributes of God, and we have done studies before of the attributes of God, you know, there's lists of them. God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He is love. He is just. He is holy. There's long lists of them. The theologians kind of break them up into groups. And one of the divisions is these are the ones that we as human beings are called to imitate. Some of them you're not going to imitate, okay? You're not going to be omnipotent as much as, I mean, as hard as you work at it, you're not going to be omnipotent. But we are called to show mercy, 
We are called to show love. We are called to be holy. All of these things we are told to imitate God. And the one that's talked about right here is love. Specifically, love to those who we really don't feel deserve it. Now the question is, why do we feel that we deserve the love of God? Well, that's easy. I'm a good guy. I mean, I've got a jacket on, right? (laughs) God has to love me. I am a sinner who has rejected the word of God, who rejected it repeatedly, and Christ died for me while I was yet a sinner. I didn't clean up my act. I didn't make myself good and perfect. I didn't solve all the world's problems to allow God to say, ah, he's a pretty good guy. I'll take that one. No. And here's the question. Are we going to imitate God by showing love to those people who hate us? Or... Are we going to imitate the Gentiles and the tax collectors and just be nice to those people who are nice to us? (sighs) Now comes the hard part. Verse 48. You, therefore. Okay? Let's just put it right out there. You. That's you. Okay? That's not those people in the room next door. That's not the people down the street. You. That's you. That's me. That's us. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay. Let's have all the perfect people raise their... No, let's not do that. We started this section with a discussion of the law. Remember? And he said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Which is really strange because up there at the beginning of the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So do I have it? Or do I not have it? Because you know what these people were thinking. We talked about this when we covered that section. The scribes and the Pharisees were the professional good people. You know, they kept their list of the laws, and I'm going to follow this one, and I'm going to, you know, I have my little potted plant growing my spices, and I'm going to make sure that one-tenth of the leaves are deposited in the tithe, otherwise God's going to zap me. And I am vastly superior to you because, well, you just don't have the time to do it. The people were in awe of the Pharisees. The people were terrified of the Pharisees, but they knew they could not be as righteous as the Pharisees. And now Christ comes along and says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, that's what all the rest of this chapter was about. Do I follow the external, I'm good, or do I follow, 
do I allow my heart to be transformed to really follow what God intended in the law? We can't do it. And here this passage comes along and says, here's the conclusion of the matter. Be perfect as God is perfect. And what do you think when you read that? Well, that's impossible. That can't be done. Well, let's take it apart and look at it piece by piece. What does it mean to be perfect? What does it mean? This word perfect carries with it the idea of what is the purpose and do you accomplish that purpose? Yesterday I spent the afternoon assembling furniture. My daughter got a chest of drawers from Ikea. And if you've ever gotten anything from Ikea, it comes in little blocks, some assembly required. So I got my screwdriver out. The reason I have my tools is I didn't want to put them away. This screwdriver serves a purpose. And it is judged to be a good screwdriver by whether it accomplishes that purpose or not. So this screwdriver is a perfect screwdriver if what I want to do is screw in flathead screws. Now, if I want to do a Phillips screw, I need this screwdriver, and it is a perfect screwdriver because it accomplishes its purpose. Same way with the hammer. Now, I hate to admit this, and Sterling will frown when I tell him, but I have been known to put screws in with a hammer before. <laughs> it doesn't work very well, because that's not the purpose for which the hammer or the screw was created. Several months ago, I was moving my daughter to college, and we went to Walmart and bought some cubicle thing that had to be assembled. And guess what? I had my toolbox, but I didn't have a hammer. But you know what? <laughs> you can use a wrench as a hammer. It's just not very good at a hammer. I should have gone back to Walmart and got a hammer. What is the purpose of this? What is the purpose of this? What is the purpose of this? They all have a purpose, and they are perfect if they accomplish the purpose for which they were created. And here's where we get in trouble. What were you created for? You know, I can't run a mile in three minutes. Nobody can, but I sure can't do it. I can't get on top of this roof and jump off the roof and fly around the neighborhood. I just can't do it. Gosh, I must be flawed. No, it wasn't in my created purpose. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we begin to think that if I were perfect, I wouldn't have limitations. I would be able to do all kinds of things. I would be able to run fast. I would be able to do... Let me let you in on a little secret. You were created to be dependent upon God. God never wanted you 
to be independent of him. God wanted you to get hungry. Why? So that at the end of the day you would say, give us this day our daily bread, and you would acknowledge your dependence upon him. A lot of us look at perfection thinking that I would have all of these characteristics and I would be like God, knowing right from wrong. The original lie of the devil himself. We are all created for a purpose. What is that purpose? The Westminster Catechism, its very first question, what is the end? What is the purpose of man? The end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Think about that for a moment. Your purpose in life is not to have fun. Having fun's okay. I'm not speaking ill of having fun, but that's not the purpose of your life. The purpose of life is not to accumulate the most stuff. I've been reading a book about, the title of the book is The Richest Man Who Ever Lived. Jacob Fuger, at one time in 1500, had 2% of the gross national wealth of Europe. He owned it. Okay? What was his mission in life? To get all the money he possibly, he said it, to get all the money I possibly can as long as I can. But that's not the meaning of life. That's not the purpose. The purpose of life is to have the most stuff. No, that's why we have storage units full of stuff. That's why my closets are full of stuff. We get confused about what the purpose of life is, and then we re- when we read this passage about being perfect, we think, ah, I can't be perfect because I can't do fill in the blank. When in reality, you were never called to fill in that blank. We are called to live a life that brings glory to God, that shows our dependence upon God in everything that we do. Point number one. Point number two is the harder one, though. We were created in the image of God, and then our ancestors, Adam and Eve, decided to ignore the will of God and brought sin into the world. And all of a sudden, not only am I not demonstrating the purpose of God, I'm I'm pursuing everything. I am taking the screwdriver and I am using it for things that it was never intended to be used for. And I wonder why I can't nail in a nail with the screwdriver because the screwdriver was never intended to. But my sinful nature says, I'm going to take my life and I'm going to do these things. And you weren't intended to do them. Our sin blocks our vision of our purpose in life. And guess what? Jesus Christ came, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins to restore us to where we ought to be. Let's look at the easy parts of this first. I'm going to go to heaven someday and the last taint of sin will be removed from my life and I will be perfect. I still won't run a three-minute mile. I still won't because I was never created to do that. But I will reflect 
the image of God. Heaven. Before I become a believer, I'm a good old-fashioned pagan, tax collector, Gentile, proud of it. I don't reflect the image of God at all. I am far from being perfect. I know that I'm far from being perfect. I have no desire to reflect the image of God. So here are the two extremes, the unbeliever and in heaven. The question that all of us have, though, is what about this time in between? How am I called to be perfect while living in this world that's full of sinners of which I am one of them? Surely he doesn't mean that I'm supposed to be perfect. And the answer is, yes, he does. Well, I can't do that. No, you can't. Remember Jesus and his discussion about, you know, uh, rich men going through the eye of a camel and all, the, the camel through the eye of the needle and all that stuff. And the disciples say, you know, that's impossible. And Jesus says, you're right, it's impossible. With man, that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let me tell you where we go off the rail. This is where we get in trouble. There's extremes all over the place, right? One extreme says, I am perfect. God made me. I'm perfect. He saved me. I'm perfect. If I'm doing something wrong, it's purely an illusion. Okay? There's actually a heresy called perfectionism. The belief that I've been saved by Christ, therefore I'm perfect. Now, the way they do this, when they really get down to it, is they start breaking you as a person apart. Your spirit is perfect. Your body, well, it's whatever. And it's probably not that important anyway. So you have people who believe this at different points of church history, and they would go off and do all kinds of things bad things. But it didn't matter because I'm perfect. It says I'm saved, therefore I'm perfect. No, that doesn't work. Our second attempt is to redefine what perfection means. In essence, this is what the Pharisees did. Okay, I can read the Old Testament and even this stuff that we've had in chapter 5, I can get out of the Old Testament. I know that I'm not supposed to hate my enemies. I know that, but I don't want to know that. So I make myself a list. I make myself a list, and I say, if I can keep that list, I'm perfect. And I make sure that it's a list I can keep. Okay? You know, you're shooting a bow. What's the best way of always hitting the bullseye? You shoot the arrow at the target, and then you draw a bullseye around it. (laughs) Works every time. That's what people do. What, what things am I doing? Well, I love my wife. Thou shalt love your wife. It's on the list. See, I'm perfect. Thou shalt love your... No, I'm not going to put that one on the list. So we create a list and we define perfection by being able to keep that list. And the list is just what we do today. That's a fallacy. But there's another fallacy that I do think we're susceptible to. And that is... Nobody's perfect, why bother? I'm driving home today, somebody cuts me off in traffic, I yell at them, I scream, give them obscene gestures. Well, nobody's perfect. 
I get mad at a church member and I'm called out on it and my response is, well, nobody's perfect. We are called to be perfect and God gives us the grace to accomplish that. Are you saying, Kyle, that I can be perfect in this world? Probably not. But you can be called to be perfect. You can strive to do what God tells you to do. You can strive to be obedient. Remember we've talked before. Justification, that point in, that point in time where you are declared righteous before God. Glorification, that point where you are taken to heaven and the last remnant of sin is removed. And in between is the process of sanctification where you are being coming conformed to the image of Christ. And if at some point you say, ah, it doesn't matter, I'm going to heaven anyway, that's a red flag. That is a red flag. If there are things in the scripture that you read them and you go, well, that's just not that important to me. That should be a red flag. There should be things in the scripture that you're struggling with. There is a sin that I am struggling with. And I will pray to God every day to help me with that. That's a good answer. The bad answer is when you've given up. And you say it doesn't matter. What is the standard to which we are called? The standard is Christ. And God will work in your life to accomplish that purpose so that you and I can be conformed to the image of Christ. This could be a terrifying verse if you thought you had to do it on your own. It could be a fabulous verse if you know that what God has commanded, God will provide the resources to accomplish. But if God has commanded and God has provided the resources and you just don't care, that's the red flag. You go back and you read older commentaries, older being a hundred years ago. And they're very open, very honest about the fact that what God expects from you is obedience. He expects, if he tells you to do something, he expects you to do it. End of story. Now, we don't, and when we don't, we confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the expectation is, when I read the word of God, I apply the word of God, and I do the word of God. And I become sanctified. But once again, to do that, we have to know what our purpose is in life. We're not a hammer trying to accomplish the job of a screwdriver. We are a creature created in the image of God, which is fabulous. But we are a creature. We are never, ever going to be independent of God. Nor should we strive to do that, nor should we want to do that, nor should we expect to do that. What did he mean when he said earlier, 
unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What he meant was that I'm going to give you a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It is the righteousness of Christ bestowed upon you by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you can be righteous before God. Your righteousness can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And as you walk through this life, you're still a sinner, but you are being led by the Holy Spirit to follow his path and not the path of this world. And what do we do? Well, from today's lesson, I'll give you a place to start. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Go home today, make you a list of 10 politicians who really tick you off. <laughs> and this week, spend more time praying for them than you do criticizing them. Let's just start there, okay? Let's just start there. That coworker, that friend, that neighbor that just ticks you off, love them. What does that mean? I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. But love looks for the good of the beloved, not just, they stab me, I'm going to stab them back. Then, then, then you will be like your Father in heaven, who shows his grace on the just and the unjust. Yes, from God's perspective, there's going to be a judgment. Because while he's bestowing his grace on the unjust, the unjust are busily ignoring it. And there's going to be a judgment. But that judgment is not your problem. But I really want to. No. You would enjoy it too much. And God doesn't want you to enjoy that. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the example of how we should live our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that this week, we would seek ways to do good to those who hate us so that we can be imitators of you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.